Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media, where we discuss the work of the great science fiction writer Gene Wolfe, one story at a time. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we're continuing our coverage of A Story by John V. Marsh, and this time we're talking about pages 107 through 121 of the 1994 Orb Edition. Before we get started, we should remind our listeners and anyone who's new to our podcast about our upcoming vote to choose what to read next. Yeah, there are 24 short stories and novellas between The Fifth Head of Cerberus and Peace, and we're going to read 12 of them. And as always, it is up to our supporters on Patreon to choose which ones they are. We're holding the vote to select these 12 stories this week. The polls open this Friday, December 14th, and they'll close on December 20th. So if you aren't already a supporter, now is a great time to start supporting us and telling us what to read next. Yeah, we love being told what to do. And if you are already a supporter, keep an eye out for that email from SurveyMonkey. And as always, thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us, and it it keeps the episodes coming. But let's get to the matter at hand. Brandon, what was your reaction to this section of A Story by John V. Marsh? I love this story more and more the more we go through it. The story will pick up where we left off with Sandwalker jumping into the river and swimming. In my mind, this isn't actually him becoming an otter like we suspected or put out there last episode. But as a person in the otter was this sort of way of teaching him about swimming. But that'll be a question we get to in the discussion. This is an odd story because not a lot happens, but a lot is going on in the background, in the beliefs of the groups of people in the story, the hill people, the marshmen, and the the shadow children. And as it is a sort of anthropological investigation of this old mythic past of the abos of St. Anne, the Annie's aboriginals, there's way more going on than, than meets the eye. So I look forward to covering the events of this section and then really digging into what is going on and who is doing what to each other in this story. Yeah, I'm excited to get into this one. I'm not sure about Annie's, though. I might say Annie-an. Yeah, you can you can say whatever you like. <laughs> so, some of the some of the uh, literature on this, some of the essays that have been written seem to have landed on Annie's, but I'm with you. Annie-an sounds way better. Well, I was really just being contrarian for the sake of radio, but maybe maybe we'll have that conversation in our discussion. Perhaps. So for now, we'll get into the, the recap. And as you say, Brandon, we pick up right where we left off last time with Sandwalker having jumped into the river and drawing on the memory of his dream vision of this otter. And he uses this in order to swim. There are many waterfalls, and these he avoids by leaving the river and circling them, but the lesser rapids he chooses to swim, and he grows more skillful at swimming each time he goes through one of these. We get one of Wolf's gorgeous descriptive passages here, but I think it will also be important to our discussion about whether Sandwalker has in some way become an otter, so I'll just read it. It's not purely self-indulgent this time. In deep pools, the currents sent him swirling toward the bottom until... With their force spent, he hung suspended in the green light, his hair a cloud about his face, then streaming straight out behind it as he followed the waters to the surface again among crystal spheres of air. A sandwalker now passes through thunder always, swimming in one morning what had taken him five days to walk. But he doesn't complete his journey that day, and so he sleeps on the sand next to the river that night, 
too exhausted even to look at the stars. The next morning, he catches a fish in the river, and then also a dab duck, another of these great names. And this dab duck he catches by swimming underwater with his eyes open and his limbs scarcely moving until he is able to grasp the bird's feet. Uh, He sneaks up on it, right? And this seems like a pretty otter move to me, a sort of otter ninja. There is an awful lot in this section of the story about what it means to be a hunter, what Sandwalker's notion of being a hunter is, and his characterization of himself as a great hunter. For me, this is Sandwalker taking on the attributes of the otter and all the animal memory that he gets from the dream to capture this dab duck as the otter would. To me, this is about mimicry and imitation, not about fully becoming. But it is odd that Every day he's swimming, and he learns how to relax in certain currents of water. He's becoming a master of swimming in the river. And I think the obvious question to ask, which we will get an answer for in this section, is why do these people not take the river usually to get around? Why do they insist on walking alongside it or only using it for water to drink instead of a a mode of transportation? There's something about the way the priest gives Sandwalker permission to swim in the water through this form of becoming the otter that I think is very important to the hill people's notions of the significance of the river. Yeah, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about that in our discussion, though I do think there are also just some physical properties of the river that make it not possible for boating here. I mean, he does have to circumnavigate these big rapids. Then there are smaller rapids that maybe are only passable if you have the power of an otter that lets you swim like that. Well, now that Sandwalker is farther north and out of the high country. The river is, in fact, quiet and slow, and his progress, his swimming, is less exhausting. The river passes through wooded hills, then lowlands, where great trees thrust arching roots 50 feet into the river, an image I just really loved. And finally, the river stagnates in a flatland where reeds and brush and trees dot the landscape. The water here tastes faintly of sweat, to Sandwalker, which is something of a puzzle to him, but I think to us suggests that this is the delta where the river waters are meeting an ocean, meeting a body of salt water. Well, night comes again, but there is no longer any riverbank where Sandwalker can sleep safely. Waterfowls circle overhead, calling to each other and sometimes crying, as though the death of the sun means terror and death for them as well. It is, in short, a night of fear. A sandwalker finds a tree that he might sleep in, but when he speaks to it, the tree doesn't answer him. And we're going to discuss the speaking trees later, I think. So I'll just quote this next line because it will be helpful then. He felt that whatever power dwelt in the lonely oasis trees of his own land were absent here. That this tree spoke to the unseen no more than to him, engendering no babes in women. Sandwalker finds a fork to sleep in in this tree, and he wakes later in the night to the presence of a loping ghoul bear, huge, thick-limbed, and stinking. And I don't think this will be the last time we get something like this in a wolf work. No, absolutely not. I love the presence of the ghoul bear in this. And, you know, we suggested that these compound animal names might suggest the prey-predator relationship between the animal and its prey, or the animal is the prey itself. It's identified as being prey. This ghoul bear is crazy. I don't know whether it's the prey of ghouls or whether it eats ghouls or what ghouls are doing on St. Anne at any point and why they would name a bear 
to be hunting the ghouls. Of course, we covered, for our listeners who haven't heard yet, a story called Snuffles by R.A. Lafferty, which does do a, a big linguistic breakdown of the idea of the word bear, of its history, and how bear and ghost are very closely related. And so maybe that's all that's going on here. Wolf is just playing games with language. We're certainly doing that. And I, I did wonder if ghoul here was meant to indicate that it's a carrion eater, that it even digs up the buried corpses of the abos. Indeed, that's another great sense of what it might be doing. It's just a hideous creature. Yeah, it smells bad. You don't want to go near it. That's really what we need to take away from this in case we ever find ourselves on St. Anne. Stay away from the ghoul bears. The Sandwalker almost falls back asleep, but then the words sorrow, sorrow, sorrow play through his mind. He is not sad, he thinks. Rather, he is full of hate for the marshmen who had killed Flying Feet and who would kill the rest of his community, including his mother. Sandwalker thinks that perhaps the words are just the wind or the murmuring of the tree, but then more words manifest in his mind. Sorrow, sorrow sorrow, loneliness, and the night coming that will never go, and it is the shadow children singing. Now he joins their song, as the old wise one had instructed him, and he recalls, too, that he is now a shadow friend, and he can call on their aid. And so he tries to speak to them through the song, but he finds that all he can do is sing with them. Sandwalker is scheming here a little bit about how to get the shadow children to come to his aid. And the songs that they're singing, he thinks, are a cry for help in some way. And so he thinks if he aids them here, if he goes out to them in their sorrow, and particularly their song Loneliness and the Night Coming That Will Never Go, which is a description of death, of they are in danger, that he will be able to call on them when he is in aid, when he goes to rescue his family from the Marshmen. Sandwalker's first inclination when he hears these words sorrow repeat in his head is to think of seven girls waiting and, and pink butterflies and what he left behind in that oasis. Wolf says something hurt when he thinks about this, but it's not sorrow. And you mentioned, of course, he hates the Marshmen that they've taken his family, though I think we'll discover that this too was a scheme on the part of the Marshmen to trap Sandwalker. But when he tries to attach these words, this sentiment to this tree, this powerless tree, he hears nothing. He gets nothing, no feeling from that. And it's that nothing that allows him to realize that it indeed is the shadow children calling. As we were told in the last section, that is the substance that the shadow children shake. It's nothing. It is the thing that keeps all things apart. So just another really great use of language here to cement an idea that we had in the last section. Yeah, and the Shadow Children have come back into this narrative in this capacity as allies that he can call upon much more quickly than I expected. I expected that to be more of an act three thing that was going to come in sort of closer to the culmination of the plot, not almost immediately. So Wolf is here, I think, even playing with the structure, with the form of the hero's journey well, as you suggest, Brandon, Sandwalker does want to get their help. And so he decides just to go to them since he can't communicate with them telepathically through extension. But walking through the marsh is laborious and loud. But finally, he devises a way of walking that resembles a waiting bird. And now he thinks that he is truly Sandwalker. And this passage may actually be something we want to invoke when we talk about whether or not Sandwalker is taking on the forms of animals now. 
It's also a very odd bit of grammar that Wolf uses when he includes this phrase uh, about Sandwalker being himself. This story is told in the third person. It's a close perspective on Sandwalker. And we have this section about him learning how to walk in the marsh, basically. He says, like a waiting bird, which is another example in my mind of him imitating the animal, not becoming it. But at the end of this, we have this sentence that says, I am Sandwalker, truly. It's now in his mind, and it's his perspective speaking to himself. For me, that's very odd, given that this text is written by somebody else whose identity is in question. And I just wonder if this is a clue to the identity of the author in some way, or if it's meaningful that we are moving into that first-person perspective for one sentence only in this whole story. I also love that the North Star for St. Anne is called the Eye of Cold. I just love that. And this is the first instance of eyes being a really important feature of the spiritual formation of the people of this planet. Yes, sight, vision, super important for the theology of, I think, all three groups that we've encountered so far. Well, when Sandwalker gets close to the Shadow Children, he hears one of them say, they are waiting to take him. And another responds, they will not take him. He's our friend. He, we, will kill them all. And now Sandwalker hears another voice, a human voice, not a shadow child. And he knows that the Marshmen are also looking for the shadow children. They're hunting them. Well, Sandwalker finds the shadow children. His own hands are grasped by their diminutive skeletal fingers, a very creepy passage. There are five of them, but the Marshmen are closing in, and there is a fight. One of the Shadow Children pokes out the eyes of one of the Marshmen, and Sandwalker does very well in the melee. And one of the Shadow Children comments about how tasty the Marshmen look. He tells Sandwalker that they are gathering at the hole where the Marshmen had formerly imprisoned them, and there they will feast, and they want Sandwalker to join them. One thing that we also learn in this brief section is that Sandwalker himself has been hunted as a child for food. And the way the passage is written, it is by starving men. And it could be other people, maybe not of his clan, but other hill people or something like that, or maybe even marsh men. We had this whole exchange in the last section about how despicable cannibalism is by both of these groups, by the hill people and by the shadow children. Here we have the fact that cannibalism sometimes does indeed take place among the hill people, and it absolutely takes place among the marshmen. Yeah, there's a lot of eating of the bodies of other sentient creatures in this story, and it's not accidental. I think Wolf is really doing something with this that we might get to in our discussion. Right. Sandwalker, when he turns down the invitation from the Shadow Children to eat the flesh of this marshman, is really because of a taboo around cannibalism. And their response to him is fascinating. Right. Well, Sandwalker has a bit of a conversation before he takes his leave of the Shadow Children. After the fight, there is a sixth Shadow Child who is seemingly solid but older than the others. And Sandwalker asks him if he is the same old wise one who he met three nights ago. This one is not, but this Shadow Child comments that Sandwalker is very young and he says, Was it only three nights ago that you became one of us? And Sandwalker replies that he is their friend, but he doesn't think that he is one of them. In the mind, the Shadow Child says, only the mind is significant. Right. This is a line we're going to lean on for our discussion. And it calls back to this notion of 
substances that we talked about a little bit last episode with the difference between a physical substance whose main characteristic is extension, it has an end point where you can see something else begin, and the spiritual substance, which might diffuse all, and for the shadow children, might be everything. In fact, it seems to me as the, the shadow children are, are closer to being non-material than material. Yeah, except for the part where they really like to eat the bodies of humans, uh, they don't seem to have much material concern at all. Right. And even their presence in the world is ethereal in some way. It is insubstantial, but they fight. It's very strange and they can kind of only be seen at night or we don't know what the day does to them, but they are nearly invisible at night. And the way it's described in this text is, especially when you're looking at the old wise one, the one who's called by the common mind of the shadow children is insubstantial. Yeah, certainly the ability to make an additional person out of the psychic connection of a small group suggests that the mind is, in fact, significant, if not the only thing that is significant. Well, now we come to a conversation that I think is enormously significant. Sandwalker speaks to the marshman who's been blinded, and this blind marshman says, The stars. If last voice, our star walker, were here, he would explain to you. Leaving the body behind to rove the stars and to straddle the back of the fighting lizard. Seeing what God sees, to know what he knows and what he must do. So here already you can just see the emphasis on seeing and its relationship with knowing. And just a reminder, the fighting lizard is the constellation that the shadow children come from. And this focus on mastering that constellation from the perspective of God speaks to the Marshman's concern about what the shadow children's presence on their planet is doing. Yeah, clearly we're seeing at least two of these three cultures have a real emphasis on the stars in this constellation. Well, Sandwalker responds to this by saying, There are those in my country who speak thus, and we drive them to the edges of the cliffs and beyond. So I think that we find ourselves in the midst of some serious theological dispute between the hillmen and the marshmen, a theological dispute that even seems to lead to members of Sandwalker's group, the hill people, being killed as heretics of some sort. Right. The idea of leaving the body, leaving the confines of earth is somehow very problematic for the hill people, but very desirable for the marshmen. And as we said last time, this might be an attempt in their both in their own way to understand why God is no longer king of men and how to return to the long dream. We also learned that the marshmen kill a star walker if a star falls from the sky, as if it is their job to maintain the order of the cosmos. And that is going to be a factor in our discussion, which, if you haven't guessed it already, will cover the theology of these groups. Yeah, I'm actually just going to read that passage here. What the blind marshman says here is, the stars tell God, and the river tells the stars. Those who look into the night waters may see, in the ripples, the shifting stars coming. We give them the lives of you ignorant hillsmen, and if a star leaves its place, we darken the water with the star walker's blood. And yeah, I think like you, Brandon, I find this theology, this cosmology, maybe, just absolutely fascinating. But as interested in this as we are, the old wise one is impatient and wants to get on with the 
eating of this blind marshman. So Sandwalker asks to interrogate him just a little bit longer so that he can learn about his mother and about his friends. But the blind man won't talk until the shadow children go away. So Sandwalker sends them off, but the shadow children just stomp their feet like they are running away. But in fact, they remain and the marshman cannot tell. We learn here that the Marshmen spend a lot of effort corralling and containing the Shadow Children, possibly to eat them, but they might have other concerns as well. Here also, Sandwalker equates the drowning of Flying Foot with defiling God's purity with death. And I think God's purity here must mean the river. And so we can see then, right, that the river is theologically important to both groups, but in very different ways. Right, and that's going to become explicit in just a few minutes. This is also not the first drowning in the river that we see. And so the death of Sandwalker's grandmother, uh, which we'll learn quite a lot about in this section as well, is also a real defilement, a, a real tragedy. It's cast in a new light when we learn this information. Yeah, and that's going to be fun when we get there, because you really called that right from our first episode when you called attention to the use of the passive voice there. But for now, in the end of this conversation with the blind Marshman, Sandwalker learns that his people are being held captive far north of where they are. They're near the great observatory of the eye, but they're in the pit called the other eye. So again, more stuff with eyes and sight and vision. But also this really called to mind for me, Trip Trap, the observatory and Trip Trap. But the conversation doesn't quite end there. At the very end, the blind man tries to trick Sandwalker and he attacks him. It doesn't go his way, but the response to his attack allows the other Marshman prisoners to escape. And the Shadow Children just aren't concerned about them. They just want to get to eating the blind one. But Sandwalker goes after these escapees because he thinks that he can follow them to his own people. And here's where we see that taboo Sandwalker carries with him explicit. They invite him one final time to eat the meal with them, eat the meat of the blind man, and reassure him that as a shadow friend, he is one of them. They don't view him as distinct, though the word distinguishes even the two people. And so he can eat the meat without disgrace. And this is such an odd phrase. It suggests that the shadow children view themselves as some kind of final judge of the people on this planet. Would they view it as a disgrace if Shadow Walker were not a shadow friend to eat the flesh of another of his own species? Or would they care? Or why are they the ones making this judgment? It's a very, very odd position they're putting themselves in. But I think it also shows how important it is to them to have everyone they regard as being a member of their group to take part in this communal meal, this consumption of this body altogether. It's important to them. Well, the next section and the next day begin with a vivid description. And you know, I like to just read those. So here it goes. Day came clear and cold. By the time the sun stood a hand's width above the horizon, the last clouds were gone, leaving the sky a blue touched with black and dotted with faint stars. In the meadow mirrors, the reeds bent and creaked in the wind, and an occasional bird, riding the turbulent air as Sandwalker had ridden the river's thundering waters, crossed heaven from end to end while he watched. That's just beautiful. It is beautiful. This whole story is filled with spectacular prose and beautiful experiential descriptions of nature from Sandwalker's point of view. This is one of those wolf stories that is quickly becoming one of my favorites. 
Yeah, I always find myself when I'm doing my read through to take the notes for our episodes that I just end up reading it out loud to myself. It's probably annoying to my wife, but it's gorgeous. <laughs> and the ghosts who haunt your apartment. Yes, of which uh, there are many. They teach me many things, including how to become an otter. Yeah, you need a ghoul bear. <laughs> probably do. Well, Sandwalker, of course, as we have learned in previous sections, is an expert hunter. And so he easily follows the trail of these escaping marshmen. At the same time, though, he is aware of the singing or the silence of the shadow children behind him. He needs them to help him overcome the marshmen who have his people imprisoned. And so he is taking his time catching up to these fleeing marshmen. He's tracking them more than hunting them. That night, as Sandwalker sleeps, we get a very curt section, one of these uh, one-line sections that Wolf likes to use. And this is in italics, and it's just a a brief conversation between Last Voice and East Wind. And Last Voice asks where he is, and East Wind tells him. And the next section opens, then, with the Marshmen capturing Sandwalker, as I think we could have anticipated. The Marshmen march Sandwalker toward their settlement for five days When they arrive, they throw him in the pit called the Other Eye with the rest of his people, and we get what I think is a touching reunion of mother and son. Sandwalker immediately sets about organizing his people in an attempt to climb out of the pit, but none of their schemes work. This ends with a brilliant bit of wolfish writing. Another Sandwalker appeared at the rim of the pit and stood a long time looking down. Sandwalker, in the pit, stared up at himself. And of course, we know that this is Eastwind looking down at him. Though it may be obvious, I think it's worth pointing out that this is the Marshmen's plan. They entrap Sandwalker. And in fact, we could even say they probably went to the village to capture Sandwalker. Last Voice had realized that Eastwind is connected in some way to another person. And so they concoct a plan, which is narrated in a very difficult way, but is ultimately kind of a simple plan to capture Sandwalker. When they can't capture him, they capture his people, then set a trap for him as he's going on his way to the marsh, which the shadow children intercept and upset that plan. And then finally, they just rely on Eastwind to to capture him. Why they're doing this, though, is the simple part that is narrated in a very complicated way. And we'll get to that in just a moment. I also want to point out that Sandwalker here is injured in his fight with the marshmen. They overtake him, they injure him, and they drive him for five days He's five days out from the other eye, from this pit. And the second he gets there, he tries to escape. I also love this play with identity that Wolf does, but I think it doesn't need to be belabored because it is obvious here where in other Wolf works, it is not obvious at all. And I also want us to keep in mind as we continue this section and kind of near its end, that the Shadow Children identify Sandwalker as sacred. And that might be a universal claim based on what we learn about Eastwind's being taken by the Marshmen. Eastwind wants Sandwalker brought out of the pit, not to be sacrificed just yet, but to talk. Uh, Sandwalker, though, tells his brother that if he wants to talk, he's going to have to come into the pit, right? Sandwalker will not go out to talk to him or won't talk if he's dragged out. So Eastwind does, he goes into the pit, and now we get this important conversation. There's no dramatic revelation of lost identities here. Eastwind knows who he is and always has, because Last Voice told him all about it. We do learn that the death of their grandmother at the river, the day they were born, was no 
accident, that Wolf really was hiding something with his use of passive voice, as you suggested right from the start, Brandon. So rather, what actually happened is that the Marshmen came and killed her, and they stole Eastwind. And, and this was intentional. It was something that they did on purpose. To me, this really just emphasizes that there is something sacred about these twins. And we don't see an example of twins anywhere else in this world. And perhaps it could be that just the whole notion of twins is sacred. But we have a real question of how the Marshmen knew that twins were going to be born. Perhaps a star in the sky told them. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think we get that quite answered in this section. We may get that answered before the stories end. And now we come to the part about this conversation that really interests me. More religion talk. Eastwind explains that Sandwalker will be killed so that he may carry their messages to the river, who tells the stars, who tell God. We've heard that before. Last Voice believes that this sacrifice may be dangerous for Eastwind because it is possible that he and Sandwalker may only be but one person, right? So there's some sense that if they kill Sandwalker, Eastwind may die or somehow be harmed. But Eastwind believes that their fraternal bond, or really their, I don't know, something that we might describe as a psychic bond, will in fact be of immense value to his people. When Sandwalker dies and goes to the river and to the stars, his presence there among the stars will allow Eastwind to go there as well, right? To inhabit this spiritual realm above the stars. And he says, in my dreams, I shall float with you in places of power. And conversely, as we've already seen, this will necessarily mean that they have to swap places. And so when they swap places, Sandwalker may still yet walk as a living man. And of course, I know we'll get into this more in this discussion, but just for now, let's state clearly, right, that Eastwind believes that sacrificing Sandwalker will send his consciousness or his his spirit Uh, his psyche, to the stars. Right. As we've seen in this story, these brothers dream about each other's lives. And as the spirit is primary, as the mind is primary, as we see, I think the Marshmen also believe, and also with what they believe about their cosmology, they want Sandwalker, whose only his body will die, his consciousness will go to the stars, and Eastwind will have the dreams of up from the perspective of a person in the sky, from God's perspective, so they can see the messages, the rivers right on the planet and be able to interpret them. In which case, they will be two consciousnesses sharing one body. And so the idea that they are one person then, or will be one person, isn't entirely unfounded if we're talking about dualism here, which is that the the complete separation of substances, there is a spiritual substance, and there is a physical substance, that the belief that they are one really speaks to their psychic connection of dreaming each other's lives, that they do have some commingling of their soul and of consciousness. Something that we haven't really pointed out, I guess, because it, it seems obvious in the text, but that we should really make clear for listeners, especially listeners who aren't reading along, is that it's clear that they are identical twins. And so their bodies are essentially the same. To me, that seems like that actually predicates their psychic connection. So I wonder if this belief is really even well-founded, if the psychic connection between their two spirits might not be lost when one of them is no longer being housed in a body. And I think of this because we saw how important the connection between soul and body 
was in the fifth head of Cerberus and how the theme there really was about souls that have been trapped somehow. But we also saw that, especially in the figure of Mr. Million, right, that you can't just take the consciousness or the the soul or spirit or psyche of a person and put it in a machine and have that be the same. So I wonder how well-founded Eastwind's idea here is. Right. And I think Eastwind is full of kind of youthful arrogance in some way. I think if we were getting this explained to us from Last Voice, there would be way more caution and fear in the explanation that Eastwind only hints at. But Last Voice saying, yeah, you could both be eradicated by doing this is probably a very severe warning about the danger of this experiment. Yeah, it's a real shame that we don't get these heroes' journeys stories from the perspective of these old, wise people who really know all the answers and all the dangers. (laughs) They're never told as cautionary tales. Probably they they should be. We all might grow up a little bit better if that was the, the case. I guess their stories would be duller, though. Yeah, a little bit. All right. While they've been speaking, some of the other Marshmen have brought new prisoners for the pit. It's the Shadow Children who Sandwalker had fought alongside. The Marshmen will feast on the sweet meat of the Shadow Children. There's none sweeter, we are told. But we also learn that after he is drowned in the river, Sandwalker's body will also be ritually consumed by the Marshmen. And there's another interesting bit that we get here as the Shadow Children arrive. The Marshman warrior says that there are five shadow children, but Eastwind corrects him. He says there are six, and I have to wonder, does this mean that Eastwind understands about the ability of the shadow children to combine their consciousnesses to form a new person? Yeah, that's an extraordinarily complicated question, because though it is Eastwind that says it, we have evidence explicitly in the story that Eastwind dreams the life of Sandwalker and knows of Sandwalker's being a shadow friend. He must know this. It's probably how the shadow children were caught. And by Eastwind saying six, he might be identifying Sandwalker as a shadow friend. Or, as is also in the text, we know that the Marshmen have a little bit more of a handle on the infestation of shadow children, shall we say, on St. Anne, and might know of their ability to project their united consciousness into a sixth being. It's really unclear to me which reading makes the most sense well now we come to the last part of the scene that happens while Eastwind is in the pit Eastwind asks Sandwalker if he would like to explain to the shadow children about their new home but Sandwalker says that no one knows why the world is as it is save that it conforms to the will of God and this is the second instance we get of Sandwalker's or the hill people's sense of like predestination of God's will being unraveled through creation. The last instance was when he first meets the Shadow Children and thinks that they can't kill him unless God wants him to be killed by them. And so there's this sense of creation being unfurled as it goes along and all conforming to the will of God. Yeah, and I think this is extraordinarily significant because I think that the Marshmen have a totally different theology than this. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. As you say, we've heard Sandwalker say something like this before. At this moment, this is almost something of a plot device because it lets Eastwind monologue about their prison and then go into a big religious speech. So we learn here that the pit that they're in is called the Other Eye, and it is situated on the west bank of the River Delta. And 
the pit that is called the eye is located on the east. And they are naturally occurring pits that result from the tidal interplay of ocean and river at the delta. I think that has to have some symbolic significance. But I think what really matters about this conversation here are the religious and the cosmological implications, right? Sandwalker doesn't know about the ocean, and frankly, he doesn't believe that such a thing even exists. And Eastman describes the ocean like this. Here, a few hundred paces east, the river widens forever. It is as a stem widens to the flower, save that the flower of the river, which is called ocean, widens without limit. And Eastwind here actually explains the theological implications of this. He does kind of an exegesis on his own speech. And he says, don't you understand yet? Don't you know why the river exceeds in holiness, both God and the stars? Why children at the beginning of their lives must be washed by it and its waters muddied with the blood of the very star walkers should a star fall? The river is time and it ends at this sacred place in ocean, which is the past and extends forever. Obviously, there's a lot going on there, but I'll just keep narrating. Well, Sandwalker disagrees with this, as, as we've seen already. Sandwalker explains that they wash their children in the river because it signifies the purity of God. Uh, the root earth of the trees, their fathers, is still upon them and should be washed away. And of course, you hear that and you're thinking about baptism. That's great. We're, we're going to get there in the discussion. But Sandwalker finishes by saying, as for the rest of your nonsense, I think it no better than that about our being the same person. Eastwind is actually prepared here to meet Sandwalker's objections, and he starts to. He says, last voice has opened the bodies of women. But this fact disgusts Sandwalker, and when Eastwind sees that on his face, he stops mid-sentence, and he just leaves the pit. And of course, as with, I don't know, every bit of dialogue that Wolf doesn't finish, I wish we had even just the end of that sentence, right? What has Last Voice learned from dissecting the bodies of women? Yeah, it's a crazy unanswered question, as though Last Voice doing experiments on women would somehow answer the question about why washing the children in the river when they're born and washing away the root earth of the trees is somehow an absurd claim or any more absurd of the river being time. And I think it's extremely important here about the way both of these brothers articulate their beliefs. Eastwind is just using pure metaphor. The river is time. And it ends at this sacred place in ocean, which is the past and extends forever. These are real concrete ideas that it's unclear to me whether they read that as a metaphor or whether that is how they actually think the world works in some way. And the reason why that question is raised is because Sandwalker's response is that the river signifies the purity of God. He has a real abstract grasp on what the river is, that it's not actually the purity of God. It is a ritual act. And so it's very interesting the way these brothers are using language to, to make their theological claims. And all of this really feels like different interpretations of similar ideas or that the same core beliefs about the nature of the universe, about creation, about divinity, but they have totally different understandings of their traditions, maybe their texts, though they don't, they don't seem to have any of those. But it really suggests that this is a kind of internal theological dispute or disagreement, not that these are two totally separate religious systems. And we're going to take that up in the discussion episode. This section and our recap for this episode come to an end with Sandwalker figuring out how life in the pit 
operates. He learns that at sunset, the marchmen will throw down some stalks that contain a lot of juice, and that's what they get to drink, and it's also all they get to eat. Bloody Finger, one of Sandwalker's group, wants to butcher the Shadow Children. He calls them vermin. But Sandwalker indicates here that he is with them, that he is, in some sense, one of the Shadow Children, and he will not let Bloody Finger harm them. The Sandwalker scoops out a bed in the sand and lies down, and after a while, the girl Sweetmouth comes and lays beside him. And that brings us to the end of this section. I have two things I want to point out. First is the way that Bloody Finger refers to the Shadow Children as vermin. And we know that the Shadow Children refer to the Hill People as native animals. They both view one another as a distinct lesser species. And so that is something to keep in mind, though I don't know if we'll get much meaning of it before the story is through. And at the same time, we see that Sandwalker and presumably by extension his people have a lot of reverence for trees, that they think that trees are sentient people who need to be asked permission to touch them, to dwell near them, to even be near them at all. Yet these other humanoid creatures who I think from our perspective would seem to very greatly resemble each other are not treated necessarily as equal in any way or even quite as people. Yeah, and that might just boil down to a little end of the egg or big end of the egg sort of problem, which is what we're going to be talking about in our discussion. But the last thing, I really like Bloody Fingers' response to Sandwalker about whether or not they're going to fight over the Shadow Children to eat. To me, this is just like a great example of wisdom. Bloody Finger says, well, I'll just wait a couple days until we're both hungry enough to not fight to eat them because that's what we'll have to do. And it's just this great sense of somebody who's lived a little while and knows how to wait it out if they need to. Yeah, it's a real Bismarckian rail politic moment there. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I think that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of this section where we have our heads screwed on straight, where we're going crazy with the text. This is such a good text just for community conversation because there is so much to interpret. So I really look forward to reading everyone's comments about how we're doing with a story by John V. Marsh. Yeah, same here. I love having uh, grammar and syntax called up to question our readings. It's a lot of fun. Well, before we go, remember that our next patron poll is happening basically now. So if you aren't already a patron, please check it out. We'll be back in just a few days with a discussion of this section. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>